You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 24th of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Paul Osborne. On today's show... It is a key aspect of our soft power. So the Minister will understand the widespread concern that the government seems willing to abandon its long-standing principled opposition to the death penalty in this case. Britain opposes the death penalty, unless it's being threatened against British alleged jihadis, in which case can we still claim to occupy the moral high ground? My guests, Stephanie Bolson and Terry Stiasny, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the row over racism and identity that's engulfed German football, plus the perils of human intervention in an effort to preserve wildlife, and if you struggle to lie convincingly, you may want to buy a foreign language phrasebook. All to come on Midori House with me, Paul Osborne, here on Monocle 24. So welcome to Midori House. My guest today, the London correspondent of Die Welt, uh, Stephanie Bolson, and the author and journalist Terry Stiasny. Uh, welcome both of you to the programme. First today, the last person to be executed by order of a British court was hanged in 1965. Four years later, Parliament formally scrapped the death penalty. Since then, British governments have always demanded assurances from foreign governments that any suspects they handed over would not face execution. It's a rule that's been in place for decades, but apparently it does not apply if the suspect is an alleged jihadi because Britain has said it would not oppose the use of the death penalty in the case of two alleged members of the Islamic State group. Um, Terry, this is um, Alexander Kurti and El-Shafi El-Sheikh. They were captured in Syria at the start of the year. They could be extradited to the US. And the British government has said this is basically part of the process of expediting a trial. We have to waive it in this to get them to stand trial. But it looks a little bit like the UK government doesn't want to be seen to be standing up for the human rights of people who are alleged terrorist murderers. Uh, Yes, I think this is a sort of an interestingly difficult question. I mean, we know that uh, in the case of Koti and Al-Sheikh, that they're people who had been in IS with them. Uh, Some of them were killed in Syria. Uh, so we know that one of them was killed by a drone strike. We know uh, Mohammed and Wazi. We know that somebody else who was with them was was jailed in Turkey. Um, and we know that they are, you know, alleged to have committed some, you know, really, truly horrible, truly horrible crimes. Uh, the question is, I suppose, because they are, and strangely, they've been stripped of British citizenship. So they've na- they're now in a kind of strange legal limbo in a in a detention center after uh, who are and being held by uh, the Kurdish administration in Syria but you're right you know britain has always said and you know particularly in under european law and in, in british law that we don't send people off to places where they may face the death penalty and so i think you know on the one hand you can weigh up these arguments and it's a question of whether it's political they're trying to be politically pragmatic and say that it's better to have some sort of a trial, even if it risks the death penalty. This trial potentially could be in the United States. Or whether you should say, you know, we need to, to stick to our guns, but then uh, in possibly not have any kind of fair trial at all. And they may, you know, the argument from the government side seems to be that, you know, the, the, 
the possible other thing is that them that they might be held in Guantanamo Bay, which we've also said shouldn't exist anymore. Um, but I do wonder whether this is the British government looking at the US government and saying these people are not likely to be very susceptible to any arguments about you know the death penalty and human rights, and thinking, well, we we better go along with it. And it seems to be a kind of a political calculation, I think, rather than weighing things up as a matter of principle. And while it may be a political calculation, uh, Stephanie, the you understand the reluctance of a politician. No politician wants to stand up and say, I am here to defend the human rights of this alleged jihadi murderer. But we heard in the, the, the clip at the beginning of the programme there, uh, Labour's spokesperson on home affairs issues saying... It's been a key part of Britain's soft power. It gives us influence around the world. That we, It's our established position, and it has been for decades. We do not support the death penalty, and we do not allow other countries to execute our citizens. Well, that's not the case anymore. And you can say this is an exceptional circumstance, but once you've done it once, it's, it's harder to turn it down the second time, presumably. Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, the Labour opposition talking about uh, creating a precedence, I mean, it was also the Labour government that during the Iraq war uh, has it just recently, um, actually, the Conservative um, government had to apologise to uh, a Libyan who, under the when Tony Blair was uh, the Prime Minister, they... Um, sent a Libyan to Libya to jail and he was actually tortured in, in jail. So governments, um, and I'm not saying only the British, but governments do 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 things that are not very much according with principles of human rights, but they do them. And uh, sometimes I think they, they hope to get away with it. And that's also the case now that letter was leaked. And I, I just find it really astonishing. Um, I find it also astonishing that um, for what I've seen until now this afternoon, Downing Street has not really commented at all of it, has said uh, the Prime Minister is aware of the letter. So they have not denied that the Home Secretary has said... Um, well, hands off, uh, we don't need any assurances that these individuals will not be uh, executed. I must say, I'm, I'm really astonished by this story. And it's presumably a, a political calculation that, you know, that the British government has not had the easiest time of it of late. And the last thing it needs is front page headlines saying Britain stands up for rights of jihadis. Yes, it, it, it doesn't. I think the British government currently doesn't need any um, difficult headlines. But uh, as you can see, they, they never get away with it because sooner or later, everything, all these things will be leaked and there will be people who are interested that this becomes public. So um, I think they should rather come out and, and stand up and explain why the Home Secretary has, has taken that decision. I mean, uh, Terry, as, as Stephanie is saying, there is a bit of a murky history here. There's the case of, of the, the Libyan uh, man who was sent over and, and tortured there there are allegations of involvement in renditions of people who've ended up in Guantanamo Bay. Um, but the difference with this one, I suppose, is that the spotlight's being shone on it before it happens rather than afterwards. Uh, yes, and there's all sorts of, uh, again, further complications that uh, would question where, you know, whether they, these guys could have a fair trial anywhere because, you know, obviously much of the evidence, some some of the evidence against them is in the public domain. There are some of the, you know, the horrific things that we have all seen. There is other evidence, of course, that has been gathered from intelligence. We don't know what means were used to gather that. And, you know, intelligence agencies on all sides are likely to be 
very reluctant to have that intelligence and the, those sources put, you know, it actually into evidence in a trial. So there's there's all of those questions. Yes, as we know, you know dodgy things have happened, particularly, as you say, uh, rendition and, you know, questions of what has gone on uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, ultimately, you know, we do have to stand up for, you know, our version of the rule of law, which doesn't include the death penalty. And we, you know, we do have to say that, you know, these people like them or not. And, you know, obviously, <laughs> on the face of it, we, we don't like them very much at all, should be able to have a fair trial under some circumstances. And I think, you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, you can ask, you always have to ask sort of why people might have leaked this and why this might suddenly have come into the, the public domain now. So there's a question as to, you know, what happens and whether this decision has changed. I think, as Stephanie was saying, you know, it's the end of the parliamentary term this is slightly sort of take out the trash day in the jargon when lots of you know unpleasant things are sort of come out and in the hope that we all go away over the summer and and forget about them but it sounds very much like these kind of discussions are still ongoing and and we'll see you know where that will come to if it does come to a federal trial in the u.s stephanie as terry was saying the the issue that could come back even if they think they can get this out of the way before the mps all go away for the summer the issue that will come back is that allegation wherever they end up standing trial you assume that their lawyer is going to stand up and say my clients have been stripped of their citizenship before they've been put on trial and the country of which they are still supposed to be citizens has said they don't much mind if they're executed so how can they possibly get a fair trial under any jurisdiction mm. It does. It does shed a very um, negative light on the UK. Like if if the um, British government has washed their hands in in advance of a trial happening, uh, they they stripped them of their citizenship. It's not really, as far as I'm aware, it's not even confirmed that this happened. But there is a lot of rumours around it, and I think um, it, it creates the impression that in in such a very difficult case, and no one is disputing that what they allegedly have done is of the worst atrocities one can imagine. So the for Beatles who I mean I, I there was the other day the um, mother of one of the victims of James Foley was on the BBC in the morning and she actually said she being the mother of one of the victims doesn't want them to be um, executed she wants them to face a fair trial and that should be actually also then in the interest of the British government to support that this happens and to make sure that any distraction of the actual case and the actual atrocities they have committed is avoided. Um, talking about the politics of this, everything seems to come back in some respect to Brexit. And, and we keep being told that Britain outside the European Union will be this beacon on its own. It doesn't need to be part of the EU to have a big international role. But you mentioned earlier, Terry, that, that this is perhaps accepting the reality of the current US administration and how open they will be to arguments about human rights. There's a risk there, isn't there, that, that this kind of thing adds weight to the idea that post-Brexit Britain will just be sort of nestling under the arm of the US and never really arguing with them. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it is an interesting question. And because, you know, obviously we don't know everything yet about the Brexit situation and to what extent Britain is going to opt out of, you know, all European uh, human rights law and so on. I mean, that's part of... European law has been, you know, the acceptance, you know, if you want to join the EU, one of the main things that you cannot have is the death penalty. Uh, and that is enshrined in, in every law for anyone wanting to join the EU. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's remotely likely that there's going to be moves to overturn that, you know, in a, in a post-Brexit Britain. But you can imagine that there might be some people who think that, yeah, well, that's okay. That's just another sort of European regulation. It's a European norm that we no longer have to abide by. 
Now, as if Germany's poor performance at the World Cup was not enough of a dent to national pride, now its beleaguered football team is caught up in a row about racism and German identity. Mesut Ozil has won both sympathy and criticism after announcing his retirement from the national team, not because of the performance on the pitch, but the reaction he got to posing for a photograph with Turkey's president. He now says he cannot play for Germany when he encounters what he has called racism and disrespect. Uh, Stephanie, the, admit that the timing of this photograph was less than ordeal just before uh, Taip Erdogan's re-election when he's facing international criticism, being t- treated as a dictator in training with an authoritarian credit, and he poses for a photo with this guy, but it did spiral very quickly yes, beyond it, that. It, it, it absolutely did. And if there's anything that you should really expect Mesut Özil or at least his advisors to to acknowledge is that the timing was not right. So he put out this statement, I think on Sunday night, on social media, a three pages letter. It's really, it's in English, it's worth reading, it's, it's very interesting. Um, he does not acknowledge for one second that maybe at least the timing wasn't the right one. He says he would... Uh, he he would have uh, posed with the um, uh, president of Turkey in any circumstances, but okay, he can do that because, or he should do that because he says, I have two hearts beating in my chest. One is German, one is Turkish. Fair enough. But did he have to do that really uh, weeks ahead of the um, Turkish parliamentary and presidential election and also ahead of the um, World Cup? Because what then happened afterwards were two things. First of all, it completely dominated any reporting on the World Cup, this row about uh, Mesut Özil posing with Erdogan. For that, you have to know that Erdogan is not the most popular figure in Germany. The t- uh, German-Turkish relationship are very difficult because of a lot of reasons. One of them that, among others, my colleague, our Welt correspondent in, in Istanbul, he was a, a year in jail, accused of terrorism. He Luckily, he's now freed and back in Berlin. And um, the other one was that... Um, that there was no no focus on 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 the football itself. It was completely distracted. And what then happened in the stadium, and that was really horrible, was that people, because there is a lot of racist people in German football, they used this as an opportunity to really abuse Mesut Özil playing for Germany in terrible terms. And he's right; it's absolutely true what he's saying. But it is the whole. I mean, there's nothing dominating now so much German headlines. It's Özil, Özil, every day, every night. And this is because it touches two raw nerves in Germany. One is football itself, and also the recent World Cup where Germany was a complete disaster, the German team. And the other one is that Germany is in the process now for the last three years of processing its own identity and asking itself, how racist are we? Uh, because of the refugees coming in, because of uh, the right wing, the search of the right wing party, AFD. There's a lot of questioning here. So in a way, it's a very interesting story as well, because you will see many voices coming in, many layers discussing it. Um, and I, there's no no black or white, or there's very much grace here to follow it. I think it's a, it's, um, it's a fascinating debate. I mean, at its, at its heart, Terry, seems to be this, this question that all countries wrestle with when, they, when, they, when they've had mass migration, which is, do, do people who arrive in your country, or as in the case of Erzo, I think it was his grandparents who moved to Germany, so it's not like he's an arrival, do people have to throw away the heritage of the nation that they originated from or their, uh, their forefathers originated from? Do they have to become purely of the nation they live in? Or, or 
do we accept the enrichment that comes from other cultures? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, I mean, comparing what you say the coverage has been like in Germany to obviously the situation in France has been turned on its head. You know, France won the World Cup and so they're now they're in a position where they're celebrating all of the players who've come from, you know, to France from all over, Mbappe and, and other members of the team who are able to say, well, look, I've got, you know, Algerian heritage and Cameroonian heritage, but, you know, hey, we won, we're all French. And I imagine if the situation had been reversed and you know Germany was you know lifting the World Cup again as they did last time you know that might I mean the Erdogan photo was obviously you know not a great idea and, and not a very clever thing for him to do but those that coverage might have might have changed its tone you know if people wouldn't be saying you know you know that he was I think it was one of the quotes from somebody was a he was a poor excuse for a footballer uh, and so a lot of you got to see it you know through the prism of you know how successful we are but remember looking back at France 20 years ago, everybody said, well, look, this amazing multi-ethnic, multi-national team, they're all French and we won the World Cup and, and therefore all racism and all, you know, problems racism in France. Racism has been defeated it's been, now. it's been solved. So, you know, we, we can tell that 20 years on, you know, that's not the, the case. And we've had the same things in Britain as well with, with football, but also with cricket. You know, it was, it was the famous uh, thing, that the cricket test, I think it was Norman Tebbit who sort of said... Oh, who that, would you cheer for? Yes, you couldn't be properly British if you if you cheered for, say, Pakistan at cricket instead of, instead of England. And I think people have come to accept more now that you can, you know, cheer for several teams at once and that you can be, uh, be a non-white, non-sort of, you know, a, a minority ethnic person in Britain and support, well, have an England flag and support the England team. So, you know, I think we've moved on in the last few years over this, but it's just interesting what, as you say, what a hot potato it it still is in Germany to this extent. Um I mean, as, as you say, Stephanie, Germany's performance of the World Cup, let's not dwell on it too much. And, <laughs> and Ursel's performance, though, as you say, he was also being booed every time he got near the ball. But he's also been part of a World Cup winning squad. He's been capped for his country 90-odd times. I mean, what more does somebody have to do to be a hero in a country? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is very much what uh, now, especially the sports commentator in Germany, try to bring in to just give the record of how how successful he has actually been playing for the German team and also for uh, Madrid, or, um, Munich, for um, for Bremen, wherever he was. Uh, but it's, it's, it's such a hot potato that this gets now very much forgotten and I think this is I can detect this attitude in Germany that I wouldn't call it racist I just put this here for discussion it's a bit like you were born here okay you have Turkish background but this country has given you everything um it's almost an arrogant attitude. Um, it's also an attitude you find with people receiving refugees. We are giving you everything. We are so generous. Now you have to show your respect and you cannot really um, have a Turkish heart. And you can't join the debate. If you join the debate, it's a, still slightly as a second-class citizen. Yes, and and that's, that's, that's the question. Is he a second-class citizen? I mean... It doesn't help now. It gets actually worse now because the president of Turkey, Erdogan, today said in parliament, I will, I would kiss his eyes and he's such a nationalist and a patriot. So I think it's now getting another twist to this, which will make it even more bitter. So while it's interesting, it's also a very toxic debate. Well, you're listening to Midori House here on Monocle 24. Uh, my guests, Stephanie Bolson and Terry Stiasny. In just a moment, we'll find out what we can learn from the brown bear who has a taste for Spanish livestock. And we have a question for any liars who may be listening. 
The rolling hills of Somerset might not be the most usual spot for a world-class art space, but it proved to be the perfect fit for Hauser and Worth, an international art gallery with its heart in the countryside. Monocle Films reviews a weird and wonderful show that looks at our relationship with the land. We used to base our knowledge, our experience of the world, on the land, on nature, on the other beings that shared the world. Now we don't. So I'm trying to, in a way, re-establish a relationship to a form of knowledge that could be useful for us. Somerset's Strange Fruit, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Well, welcome back to Midori House here on Monocle 24. Still with me in the studio, Stephanie Bolson and Terry Stiasny. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but are you a liar? And if you are, are you a good liar? Now, assuming you answered yes to that question, and assuming that when you did so, you were actually telling the truth, how would you be at lying in a foreign language? Because apparently that could be easier than you may think, according at least to research from the University of Würzburg. Um, Terry, I would imagine, without looking at this research... Lying in a foreign language will be even harder because I have to come up with the lie, then I have to translate it into another language, then I have to deliver the lie convincingly. But according to this study, it's easier because, partly, your performance is already a bit halting and a bit suspect because you're doing all of that anyway. You're translating it into another language and you're not completely comfortable with it. So the giveaways that you're lying are kind of submerged beneath it. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Research. I mean, from what I've seen of it in summary, it's a, there's two competing theories. Uh, and one is that your cognitive load in the jargon is that, you, you know, you have to think harder to lie. You have to think about the truth and then you have to think about the lie that you're going to tell. But there's also a question of emotional distance so that when you're speaking a second language, according to this research, it's is not as emotional, that it comes kind of somehow from your head rather than your heart. And so, yes, as you say, the balance between these two things is supposed to uh, to cancel it out. And you can imagine if you're lying, you know, when you're searching for a word in another language, you might kind of hesitate and go, oh, oh, that's not quite the right word. And some of those tells that you see in people might be the same things as they are when, you, when, when you're lying. I guess it must depend to a large extent how good you are at the second language. Like if you're completely bilingual, the kind of person who can think in a different language. I imagine it's probably just as easy to to lie in the language that you can also think in because you're not going through that that extra layer of of processing. Well, somehow. let's put that but, yeah. to the test, Stephanie. <laughs> um, which language, not that I'm suggesting for a moment that, that lying is a part of your daily life, but if it, if it were for a brief moment to be... Which language would you rather lie in, German or English? German. And is that... Are you, so there's still an element of processing going on, sort of English language processing that you think might make it harder. I think to lie in a convincing way, you really have to um, know the language so well that because when you're lying, it's quite... You have to find the right words and you have to have the right structure of your lie. Yeah, you know what I mean? Um, so I'm not so sure. While I completely agree, you when you speak in another language, the emotional distance is different. So, um, for example, when I swear or when I talk to a child or when I talk to animals, I will always talk in German because this is my emotional language. Um, while if you lie... Actually, you're not so very emotional, are you? You should be quite cold when you when you when you lie. Plus, if it's in another language, 
you don't have the perfect vocabulary. So I'm not bilingual. So probably if you're bilingual, that's that's different. But I I'm I'm not so sure uh, if I could lie better in English than lie in German. I would actually find it easier in German to lie. And some some reports about this study have said that one of the consequences of it is that it counters the idea that an asylum seeker who's being interrogated is untrustworthy and lying because, as you say, the cognitive dissonance of, of answering these questions, being interrogated in an oppressive environment in another language produces many of the same signs that you would produce if you were lying. But you would have thought that uh, officials would already have taken account of that idea. I guess it's, it's <laughs> the question is how complex is your lie? So if you are sitting there and you, you are from, I don't know, a third country that actually is not a, is a safe country of origin and you want, you actually have to lie in order to say, you say, I'm Syrian and you only can say 50 words in English anyway, then it might be easier to lie. But if you have a more complex lie about money or relationship or whatever, that, that acquires quite a lot of vocabulary. So I think it also depends on the context of the lie. And that's the golden rule of lying, isn't it, Terry, is to keep it as simple as possible. The more layers of, not that I'm, I'm sorry, I'm told, mm. not that the, the more complexity you add to the lie, the harder it is to remember the fake story. I think that, yeah, that's always the case, isn't it, in any sort of murder mystery where you get caught out, that, you know, it's that you want to sort of keep it simple and straightforward. It's, it's interesting because right? I know friends and people who speak different languages and I've no I remember once or twice I've been with a friend who suddenly switched language without them realizing that they had done it and that was actually quite a sign of quite a close friendship in that they started speaking their own language that you didn't speak and you suddenly said sorry what was that and they went oh oh I, d I didn't actually realize I was speaking in the other language and sometimes people you know it's strange how the brain works and how we process language and I think it yes if you sometimes you're in a, a moment uh, you can you can almost, if you can switch language that easily, forget which one it is that you're actually speaking. And presumably in that thing, you'd also forget the complex lie that you might have tried to construct in another language. So I think, I think the moral of this story is, you know, just don't lie, kids. Don't lie. Always tell the truth. Uh, finally, we have the sad story of uh, Goyat the Brown Bear. Now, two years ago, he was moved from his native Slovenia to the Spanish Pyrenees as part of an EU project to boost the local bear population. It didn't go entirely according to plan and he could soon be homeless again. Apparently, Stephanie, he went on a killing spree uh, targeting the local livestock. There have been 15 attacks at least this year. You would have thought that, that sending brown bears into an area with existing native wildlife would probably produce that result. Bears like eating other animals generally. Yes, and they like eating honey. So apparently uh, the, the brown bear also <laughs> destroyed two beehives. Um, surprise, surprise. I can't I, blame I, him for that. Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> Who yeah, doesn't want honey? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, if you, if, you, if you put an elephant in a, in a china shop, then the china shop will go uh, bust. So I, I, I find it quite uh, surprising that they put a brown bear in an area. I wouldn't, I, I must admit, I... I didn't know anything about this kind of programs beforehand, but that they put a brown bear obviously quite close to civilization. So he killed goats and he killed, I don't know what else was else, some foals or something. Yeah, and, and it's called rewilding, this idea of, of restoring uh, creatures or, and also uh, animal and plant life. To, to places where they've, they've disappeared. I mean, in principle, it sounds great, but fundamentally, it's still human interference in nature. 
Well, yeah, it's really interesting because there are big campaigns now to rewild areas. And in France, you know, the wild boars are kind of quite well, well widespread. I mean, they've always survived, I think. But, you know, they come into towns, you know, they come into... Uh, people have reintroduced wolves as well in, in places like the Pyrenees and wolves are now spreading across Europe. And, you know, people think this is really nice when it's, you know, let's have more trees, let's have more otters in the rivers, let's have more fish and more butterflies and it'll all be lovely. And they, you know, there's a reason that we're scared of bears and wolves in very good reason. You know, that, that's why it's come down through our myths, you know, because they, they will kill things and that's what they do. And some people are uh, sort of saying, well, if you reintroduce like lynx into the UK, then, you know, we won't need so much, you know, to keep pests down because they'll be the highest predator and they will kill, you know, they might kill, I don't know, the foxes or, or whatever else, you know, is, is predatory. But yeah, yes, if you put higher predators into a landscape, they're going to they're gonna come for your sheep. Uh, you know, you talk to a farmer, that's, you know, that's what they do. And if you're in favour of nature taking over, yeah, you're going to realise that it's we're going to go back to properly. the days when we, we were scared of wolves and we were scared of bears and what was lurking in the forest. I mean, many years ago, um, I was staying in, in Vancouver Island in a friend's house and woke up to find an enormous bear just sort of pacing through the back garden and a friend of mine went, that's what they do. They just, that's, that's, <laughs> that's what they do. And it was beautiful and absolutely terrifying. And, and you mentioned the idea about putting the lynx back into the UK. I mean, you want to wake up in the morning and go, oh, that's just the lynx, don't worry. I'm, I'm, I have enough with the foxes I see every day and every night uh, on on my way to work or even in the back garden, and they are so unimpressed. Um, I think I don't need a bear on top of that. I mean, keep, keep, they, they keep control of pests, you know, so do pest control people, and pest control people are unlikely to return in the dead of night to, to kill your dog. Mm. I mean, as you say, Unless the States, you don't pay them. I never actually haven't actually seen a bear close to, but you know, I know friends who live in in the Western United States, and yeah, you go for a hike in the forest, and they say, "Don't leave food behind, don't leave things behind, because the bears will come for you." And you teach your kids, you know, this is what to Stay do. Stay away if you, from the bear. You know, if you see a if you see a bear anywhere in the you woods, go, you know, anywhere you go on holiday, big, and there's a sign that says, you know, if you see a bear or a tiger or something, just backward, just don't go. It's, it's <laughs> just don't go. Um, that's all we have time for, I'm afraid. Uh, Stephanie Paulson and Terry Stiasny. Thank you both very much for joining us here at Midori House. Our show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It was researched by Paula Schultz and our studio manager was David Stevens. More music in just a moment. Monocle on design coming up at 1900 London time. I'll be back for the Monocle Daily with more of the day's main stories at 2200 here in London. Midori House back 1800 London time tomorrow. From me, Paul Osborne. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.